Open your Bibles to Judges 6. Judges 6 will begin in a moment at verse 11. Judges 6 will begin at verse 11 here in a few moments. I've got a question for you. What does it mean to be converted? When we speak of a convert, when we speak of conversion, what does it mean to be converted? And I'm going to propose to you that it doesn't really matter what realm you're talking about. Conversion is messy business. Let's start with something really simple and not particularly controversial. If you were to ask me, have the Shaws converted to LED lighting? I would say yes. And yet the other day we came down in the morning and the cat had knocked over a lamp during the night and broken the lamp and the bulb that was there was one of those compact fluorescent bulbs. So I guess maybe we haven't fully converted to LED lighting. And if I were to stop and think about it, if you were to go up in our attic, you might even find some old incandescent bulbs up there. I just don't get up there often enough to change out those bulbs. So if we converted to LED lighting, well, I guess technically we're kind of in the process of converting. Now, it's not because I don't believe in LED lighting. It's not because I don't see its superiority. It's not because I don't think it to be better. I'm convinced that LED lighting is the way to go. It is more fuel efficient, energy efficient. It is, it is more flexible. There are designs and, and ways of doing lighting never before imagined. It is uh, more durable. You don't have to replace the bulbs nearly as often. I love LED lighting, but it turns out that the process of converting is kind of a slow, ongoing process. This is true of almost anything. I think we would all agree that America has converted to the automobile. And yet I still occasionally see people ride horses. Conversion doesn't always come with completeness. Now, some of you will say, well, Scott, that's very different than spiritual conversion. Spiritual conversion has right and wrong components to it. Riding a horse is not inherently wrong. Having an incandescent bulb is not inherently wrong. Those are very different things. And I would say you're right. But let me point out another, let me use another illustration of another time and type of conversion where there is a right and a wrong. As a high school science teacher, I very much wanted to convert my students to think scientifically. The scientific method is intended to allow us to draw valid, correct conclusions, to take data, to take evidence, to take information, and to draw from it a proper and valid conclusion. So I wanted to train my science, my students, to avoid Incorrect, untrue, invalid conclusions. So, for example, <clears throat> the students would say things like, you know, last night I was studying for the test, and I was listening to rap music, and I got an A on the test, so that proves that rap music uh, 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 improves the uptake of information while you're studying. You're laughing because you understand that that is an invalid conclusion. Perhaps the test was just easy, and that's why you got an A. Maybe what you ate for dinner affected how you studied, and that's why you got an A. Maybe you already knew most of that information beforehand, and that's why you got an A. Maybe you just liked the information and were eager to study it, and that's why you got an A. You cannot conclude that it was because you listened to rap music. That's untrue, invalid. There is a right and a wrong here. And by the way, sometimes it's far more serious. When we jump to conclusions about other people and their intentions based on too little data. 
When we don't think scientifically about how we interact with one another, it leads to very harmful outcomes. So I had a student, Amanda. She was in my science classes. She was also on my volleyball team. And Amanda was an outstanding student, and she got A's on everything that was related to this. When it came to describing the scientific method, Amanda got an A on the test. When it came time to, to uh, uh, when I would give them examples of bad uh, uh, thinking, unscientific thinking, she could root them out and identify them and, and, pull, and weed them out of the, the thing and, and find what's wrong with them. When it came time to design her own scientific experiment, Amanda did an outstanding job and designed an experiment that was perfect. It was wonderful. And so I would think of Amanda, I would look at Amanda as a convert to scientific thinking. And then one day we're riding on the team bus coming home from a volleyball match and I overhear Amanda make this declarative, definitive statement. My boyfriend doesn't love me. In her data point, the, the, the information she used to arrive at that, he didn't call this afternoon after school. Never mind that maybe he got home and Dad put him to work in the yard and he didn't have time to call. Never mind the fact that maybe he was out playing street hockey with his buddies and just forgot. Maybe he forgot that you had an away game and he called, but it was after you already got on the team bus. Maybe there's a thousand other reasons he didn't call. So here was Amanda who got everything right when it came to scientific thinking in the classroom, but she would jump to completely invalid conclusions in her own personal life. Is she a convert to scientific thinking? I'll be honest and tell you this. I'm a guy who has been validated on every level as a scientific thinker. I have advanced degrees in science. I have published peer-reviewed uh, science journal articles. I have invented chemicals that didn't exist before I made them. I was the first guy to ever make them. I have been uh, approved by four different post-secondary institutions to teach college-level science. I am a scientific thinker. And yet, routinely, my wife, those close to me, myself, catch me drawing invalid, unscientific conclusions. So my convert to scientific thinking. Conversion is messy, messy business. Learning the scientific method is one thing. Living it, thinking that way, functioning that way is to get altogether something else. This morning, we're going to look at Judges 6, 11 through 40. We're going to be introduced to Gideon, and we're going to see the conversion of Gideon. And we're going to see that his conversion is messy business. And yet, we're going to see that it is something that is being accomplished by God in his life, and hopefully in ours as well. Judges 6, beginning in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the uh, Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I want to pause and remind us that we see that Lord in all caps. It's the proper name of God, Yahweh. And that's going to matter here in a moment because we're seeing a battle between Yahweh and Baal. 
back to four, verse 14. Uh, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, verse 14. And Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang and fire, I'm sorry. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Bethrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on, on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerob Baal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, Jer uh, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Bezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon and Naphtali and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. 
If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me, uh, please, I'm sorry. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. To him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, reveal to us the the process of conversion, the way that you work in the lives of those whom you call. Let us see you at work in Gideon's life and in understanding how you worked in him. Let us have a renewed understanding of how you work in us. And let us then rest in the comfort and the knowledge that you are at work. Let us rest in the assurance that you will be the one who completes our conversion. Let us see that at work in us and be be encouraged by it and strengthened through it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I have 10 points, and I don't imagine for a moment that we're going to remember 10 points. I don't believe that to be, I'm not going to walk out of here remembering all 10 of these points in any particular order, so I didn't try to make them alliterate. I didn't try to come up with clever ways to remember them. They don't spell out an acrostic or anything clever. But rather what I am hoping is that we will remember this. That conversion is a difficult, ongoing process. And that we will remember that the story of Gideon gives us some insight into that process. And that we will remember that we can turn back here and find some comfort in the way that God works in us. Perhaps we'll write some notes in the margins of our Bible. Perhaps we will tear the page out of the bulletin and stick it in here. But one way or another, I want us to see Gideon's story as the story of our conversion process also. So let's take a look. Ten points. We can't spend very long in any one of them, so let's begin to take a look at these. Start right there in verse 11. Conversion begins when Jesus calls us. Conversion begins when Jesus calls us. Now, in case you don't see Jesus there in the text, let me remind you that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the Godhead, God the Son, in uh, uh, his pre-bodily form. I don't want to spend a long time proving this, but if you just look at verses 12 and 14, in verse 12, it's the angel of the Lord speaking to him, and in verse 14, it is the Lord speaking to him. The two are the same. They are equivalent. This is God. And it is God, it is Jesus, it is God the Son who calls people to conversion, who calls them to be his. You say, well, Scott, you talked earlier about drawing invalid conclusions from too little data. Aren't you doing that here? It's just one story of Gideon. But I would point out, was it Paul who on the road to Damascus stopped along the way and said, boy, I'd like to know more about this Jesus? Or did Paul's conversion begin with Jesus? Did Peter go to the itinerant preacher, Jesus, and say, I would like to be your disciple? Or did Jesus come to Peter and say, follow me? Was John the Baptist, the first words out of his mouth when he learned to talk, did he say, I want to be the forerunner of the Christ? 
Or did God come to his parents and say, your son will be the one crying out in the wilderness? Which of the prophets? Was it Jeremiah or Isaiah, perhaps Habakkuk or Amos or Hosea? Which of the prophets went to God and said, I want to be your prophet? Did David speak up and say, I want to be king? Or was he left out in the field not to be considered at all? Did Samuel get up in the middle of the night and call out to God, or did God call him? Did Moses walk up to the bush and strike up a conversation, or did the bush call him? Was Abraham in the land beyond the river worshiping other gods and scratched his head one day and said, I'm going to move to Canaan and worship a new god? Or did that call begin with God? And Noah, did he say, Lord, I've seen the forecast, would you like me to build a boat? Or did God come to Noah and say, build an ark? And of course we know that Adam, before he was created, asked to be created. It always begins with God's call in our lives. Conversion begins when Jesus calls us. Conversion begins. And if you are here today, as we go through this, if you recognize the marks of conversion in your own life, if you recognize that you're on the path, then praise God, thank God, honor God. Be grateful that he called you and that that process has begun in your life. Conversion always begins when Jesus calls. Conversion is instantaneous in God's eyes. Conversion is instantaneous in God's eyes. Look at verses 12 and 14. Verse 12, uh, O mighty man of valor. Verse 14, go in this might of yours. Those are laughable. Did you catch the broader context of who Gideon is? First of all, O mighty man of valor, where is Gideon threshing out his wheat? He's in a wine press. Why? It tells us so that he could hide from the Midianites. Yeah, this is quite the man of valor. He doesn't go out in the open and just <clears throat> say, yeah, I'm going to thresh out my wheat. You guys want to kind of, you think you're man enough to take it from me? Go ahead. Come on, come on. Try to take it from me because I'm a mighty man of valor. And of course, when God comes to him, how does he respond? Well, I'm from a pretty minor family and a pretty minor tribe. And by the way, I'm the least in my father's household. We see him in verse 13. He's convinced that Yahweh has forsaken them. He's not this man of great faith who's convinced that it's all going to be okay. And of course, then, when it comes time to tear down Baal's altar, he did it at night for fear of the other people. How is it that God refers to him as a mighty man of valor? How is it that God says to go in this strength that you have? Because God sees the end. He is the one who sees both the beginning and the end. He sees it as a completed process. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Hebrews 10, 14. Flip over in your Bibles to Hebrews 10, 14. This is an incredibly important verse. Hebrews 10, 14. Uh, it's talking about Christ as the subject, so the, the pronoun he there is Christ. Hebrews 10.14, for by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you catch the verb tenses? Has perfected. It's done. It's a past tense. It's complete. Those who are being sanctified. Present tense in process. In this verse, we see the blend of how God sees us completed in Christ. 
and how we are yet still undergoing the process. Conversion is instantaneous and it is complete in God's eyes. That's why he can call Gideon a mighty man of valor and charge Gideon to go forth in the strength that he has. Conversion does not exclude doubt. If it's completed in God's eyes, it is most certainly, we have to admit, not complete in our eyes. Doubt is not excluded by conversion. Look at verse 13. Uh, sorry, back in uh, Judges 6. Look at verse 13. Yahweh has forsaken us. Verse 15, oh Lord, how can I save Israel? Verse 17, show me a sign. Verse 27, he tears down the, the altar at night. Verses 36 through 40, show me a sign. Show me another sign. There's a lot of doubt going on in Gideon's mind here. He is questioning, doubting, struggling. Even after he has admitted, he has confessed that it was Yahweh, he has confessed that he recognizes who the angel of the Lord is, and yet he continues to doubt. Now, I'm not saying that means you should doubt. I'm not encouraging doubt. I'm not saying you need to go forth and doubt. What I am saying is that when the doubts come, don't let them cast your conversion into doubt. Do not let doubt cause you to doubt. When you experience doubt, know that it is a normal part of conversion. We see it in Peter, a man of great faith, but one who struggles along the way to believe the way he should. Conversion includes doubt. Number four, conversion progresses at God's direction. Look at particularly at verses 16 and 34. Verse 16, I will be with you, and you shall do such and such. Verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Notice that it's not Gideon who, who pushes the ball down the field. It's not Gideon who makes progress toward his conversion, but rather it is the Lord who is pushing Gideon's conversion process. It is the Lord who is moving the ball down the field. Now, to be sure, Sanctification is a cooperative process. We do participate, but we, we do not initiate. Rather, it is something God initiates, and we then come along and are a part of it. Conversion progresses at God's direction. Number five, conversion is marked by increasingly rich worship. Conversion is marked by increasingly rich worship. Verses 18 and 24 in particular, look at verse 18. Uh, 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 Please do not depart until I can bring my present. I want to worship you. I'm now increasingly convinced you are the true God, you are Yahweh, and I want to worship you. Verse 24, Gideon built an altar. Notice that his worship advances. In the one place, I want to go make a, 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 a meal for you. I want to bring you a present. In the other place, I'm going to do a lot more work. I'm going to actually build an altar to you. So there's a progressive nature to his worship. And again, we see this throughout the saints. After Noah was saved on the ark, he built an altar and worshipped. David. Did he ever, like, write any worship songs, maybe strum his guitar once in a while? 
He's a major psalmist. He worshipped in response to what God did for him. When on the boat, when Peter, during the, the miraculous catch of fish, when Peter realizes that Jesus is not any, just a mere man, but he is God, falls down at Jesus' feet and worships. And of course, what did Paul do on the road to Damascus? He fell down and worshipped. Worship is uh, a necessary and uh, a marked thing when it comes to conversion. You know, there's this old saying, it's not, I don't hear it so much anymore, but back in the 70s, 80s, it was common to, to a little quip that everybody thought was cute and funny. You know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. <laughs> and I guess that's technically true. Going to church does not make you a Christian. But if you are a convert, if, you, if conversion is happening in your life, you will go to church. The one necessarily follows the other. If you are not marked by a desire to worship, if you are not marked by a desire to hear God speak to you through his word, if you're not marked by a desire to sing his praises and give him offerings, then perhaps conversion is not underway in your life. Conversion is marked by worship. Worship that grows and increases and becomes richer over time. Conversion is marred. It is marred by flaws and mistakes. This is a little harder to see in this text because we are modern readers and we don't know the things that the original readers would have understood and known. So let me see if I can offer an illustration. <clears throat> so, uh, uh, imagine that you are... This, this happened a few years ago here. Imagine that you are... Uh, uh, middle-aged couple, 40, 45 years old, you're standing in line at the store, you've got a couple of your, your children are kind of on that cusp of adulthood, they're in their late teens, early 20s, um, you're standing in line at the store, and the young man in front of you has got his, he's young, you can tell, he's got his army dress uniform on, no stripes yet on there, maybe one stripe on the arm, he's not ranked up very high, but he's in line, he's all cleaned up, looking sharp, he's buying flowers, it's Friday, about 5 o'clock. In that context, can you figure out what's going on? This young man is getting ready to go on a date. He's got leave from his job in the Army, and he's headed out on a date. In context, you recognize the way he's dressed, and the way he's buying the types of flowers that he's buying, the time of day in which he's buying them. You're able to piece together you, under, you went through it once yourself. You've now got kids your own. They're going through it. And you recognize what's happening. This happened. This happened to our son, Caleb. And in fact, the couple that was in line behind him paid for his flowers so that he didn't have to, so he could go on his date. Whether he would first in the, got home from the army some years back. In context, we recognize the clues. We need to recognize the clues here. The offering that's being made here. Not being made as a meal per se. It is food. But notice that he, he talks about it as, a, as a, a, a present, a gift, an offering. And it's accepted by the angel. There are, you know, when the angel of the Lord meets with Lot, the angel of the Lord eats with Lot. This is different. This is an offering. And what he offers may not catch our attention at first glance. But you see, in that world, 
The typical offering of cakes, of small cakes of bread, was the offering made to Asherah. To Asherah. The goddess. The wife of Baal. The consort of Baal. We see her come up later that he's directed to destroy the Asherah. A totem-like structure. What's going on is this. There's interesting study has been done. A man by the name of William Deaver, a professor of archaeology at the University of Arizona, has written a book, and he's, he's, he's noted how from the archaeology that one of the things you see in ancient Israel is this constant blending of Asherah, not just with Baal, but with Yahweh also. And we recoil at that going, oh, that's not the way. You know, the Israelites, they were monotheists. No, they weren't. The Bible says they weren't. We see repeatedly in the Bible that they were not monotheists. They, they constantly were blending the surrounding religions into their Yahwehism. This is tes- attested to right here over and over again in the book of Judges, let alone the books of Kings and Chronicles and all the other places we see it. And what we have going on here is the young man Gideon is, on, is in the process of conversion. He recognizes that it is Yahweh standing in front of him and talking to him, but he now blends his false understanding. If there is a god, then there must be a goddess. That's what I'm used to. That's the pagan culture I'm surrounded in. That's all I know. I'm just in the process of conversion. That must be true. And so he brings an offering fit both for the god, the goat, and for the goddess, the cake. We have to recognize that this sort of flawed worship is a part of conversion. Most of us have got to admit we've been there at some point. Which of us does not look back over our own lives and go, wow, I really misunderstood back then. I can't believe what I used to think. I can't believe that I got it that wrong once upon a time. Perhaps it's a doctrine like election that you once denied and you now embrace. Perhaps it's an understanding of how the Trinity works. That's my own, one of my own personal stories is for a long time I held what turned out to be a heretical view of the Trinity. Thankfully it got corrected. Our worship is going to be f- flawed by mistakes, missteps. It doesn't mean that God doesn't accept it. The offering here is accepted. It doesn't mean that we have to, you know, avoid worshiping, avoid saying anything until we've got it perfectly figured out and 100% correct, because we're not going to get it there. But we do need to recognize that conversion is going to be marred. Verse 22, conversion is manifest in aha moments. There's a wonderful aha moment there in, in verse 22. So the, 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 the offering is uh, burned up. Then Gideon perceived that he, that he, the man talking to him, was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It dawns on Gideon that this is the true God. And in that moment, he gets this aha moment. And you are going to have, you probably already had those aha moments. Those moments of understanding, those moments of revelation, those moments when it all comes together in a way that it hadn't before. And you go, oh, I see it now. Now, one of the things to do is don't, don't sit there and necessarily uh, uh, worry about the past. Oh, I must have gotten it so wrong before. I need to go back and repent. No, this is how it works. This is God bringing you along. Mm-hmm. 
embrace the aha moments without necessarily letting them make you feel bad about the time before when you had a misunderstanding. Be excited to move forward in your understanding. Don't worry about the past misunderstanding. Conversion is going to be marked by aha moments. Number eight, conversion is tested. Conversion is going to be tested and tried. Verses 25 through 32, we have the account of God coming to Gideon and saying, you must tear down the altar to Baal. Take the two bulls. The way it's worded, probably what this is, is two bull oxen. And he says, take the bulls and tear down the altar. So he's harnessing up the the oxen and using them to to pull the altar down. Going to take the bulls, tie some ropes around them, throw some ropes around the altar, give the the bulls a little tap on the backside, get them moving, get them moving, boom, the altar comes crashing down. He then builds an altar to Yahweh. Notice the wording, stone by stone, each stone in due order, I think, in some translations. In other words, going to build the altar the right way, the way it's supposed to be. All of this he does in the dark of night because he's afraid. His faith is being tested. His conversion is being tested. And he is afraid. You and I are going to be afraid. There are times we're going to be tested. There are times we're going to be asked to do things that are not particularly comfortable for us. Turning your Bible to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I'll start at verse 2. We're already in Hebrews. James is the next book. James 1, starting in verse 2. I'll read verses 2 through 4 and then pick up in verse 12. James writes this. And this is... Basically, how he opens his letter. Remember, the first verse is just an introductory verse. This is now how he begins his letter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Look down at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We are to rejoice in trial. We are to rejoice at the testing of our faith, of our conversion is going to include it. If you're not being tested, if you're not being tried, if if your faith is not being stretched and pulled and tugged at, you have to ask the Lord to do so. You have to ask the Lord to push you, to strengthen you, so that you will have the steadfastness that James says it's such a blessing. Conversion includes testing. Conversion blesses God's people. I'm back in Judges 6 again, looking at verses 33 through 35. We see there in 33 through 35 how the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east are gathering together. They're gathering for war against Israel. And who is it now that leads the defenses of Israel? It is this young convert, Gideon. We don't know how much time has passed here. We don't know with certainty. It takes time, even today, to amass an army. Back then it took even more. So at least some months have probably gone by. And this young convert is now the one who's going to lead the defense of Israel. There is an old saying that there is no zealot like a convert. What a blessing to God's church when converts come in with a zeal that some of us have lost. 
You've been in the church a long time. We've been worn down by the challenges and difficulties. Our faith has been tested to the point where sometimes we are, we are tired of it. And the new convert comes along with a zeal and an enthusiasm that is a blessing to all of us. How wonderful that is. And here Gideon becomes the one who leads the defenses of God's people. The one who was hiding before is now taking center stage. His, con- his conversion is a blessing to God's people. Converts are a blessing to the church. They are a blessing to the people of God. In my own life, I've been amazed at how often I find this to be true. I was teaching Sunday school some years ago, and there was a woman who was uh, converted in uh, adulthood. And she didn't grow up in the church like some of us did, and so she didn't know that there were certain things you weren't supposed to ask. You don't talk about that in a proper Sunday school class. <clears throat> and she would ask any old question, and I loved it. Because her question spurred great discussion. It expanded the understanding. She was a phenomenal blessing to our Sunday school class. I know people who come out of a liberalism that was no Christianity at all. And they come into a conservative uh, biblical understanding of Christianity. They are converts to true Christianity out of liberalism. And they are watchdogs. Blessed watchdogs against their church making the mistake of getting in to biblical liberalism. They are a blessing. Converts are a blessing. Finally, number 10. Conversion is never complete in this life. Conversion is never complete in this life. I don't put a verse with this one if you're looking at the notes in the bulletin. Rather, this is really largely the topic of next week's sermon. So it's kind of a teaser to get you to come back and be a part of next week's sermon. But without, going, uh, uh, without leaving it hanging too much, so let me say a few things about this. Which of the saints that we've mentioned earlier was flawless in this life? Was it before or after his conversion that Abraham slept with his handmaid Hagar? It was after. Was it before or after his conversion that Moses, in frustration with God, struck the rock when he was supposed to talk to it? It was after. Was it before or after his conversion that David slept with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah? It was after. Was it before or after his conversion that Peter displayed a bigotry against the Gentile Christians in the book of Acts? It was after. Was it before or after his conversion that Paul could not reconcile his differences with Barnabas. It was after. Conversion is never complete in this life. That's not meant to discourage you. That's not being said so that you will give up and go, oh, what's the point in trying? But rather so that you will recognize in yourself the path you're on is the path that all the saints before you have walked. Your frustration, your disappointment, your discouragement, your imperfections, these are the things that have marked the life of all of the converts before you. 
you are not going about this wrong. You're not, you don't need to beat yourself up. You don't need to come up with a new plan by which you're going to absolutely conquer sin in your life. You need to just keep walking the path of conversion. Keep hearing God speak to you. Keep worshiping Him. Keep studying His Word. Keep being among the saints who will help you and guide you and challenge you. Keep on the path. You see, the situation is this. You are convinced of the superiority of LED lighting. But there are some incandescent bulbs in your life nonetheless. You are a convert who is being converted. You are the one who, is, who has been made perfect and is being sanctified. If these things mark your life, a desire to worship, an acknowledgement that there is testing, a, a, a manifestation, aha moments by which you come to an understanding, flaws which are corrected, if the, things we've, if, the, if the other nine things we've listed are a part of your life, then this tenth one is a reality that you need to recognize also. It is a lifelong process. And it is a lifelong process and the one sitting next to you also. It is a lifelong process in your brothers and sisters. And as we recognize that our conversion is imperfect and incomplete in this lifetime, we must recognize that the conversion of those around us is also incomplete and imperfect in this lifetime. And as our Lord is patient with us, let us be patient with them. Let us be patient with ourselves. Let us trust in his working, in his plan, in his process. This is how he's done it with all the others. Let us recognize that he will do it with us. How does Paul comfort the Philippians? In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Your conversion will one day be completed. It will one day be done. There will come a time when the conversion will be a thing of the past and you will be a full-fledged, card-carrying convert. But it's not in this life. It's when the day of Jesus comes. When we finally see him as he is when we finally have the fullness of his person applied to us, that day will be completed. Until then, let's love one another, help one another, encourage one another in these things. Let's work together toward it. Let's understand the process, but let's recognize and be patient and wait on the Lord for him to bring it to completion. Lord, we pray for the completion of our conversion. Lord, we pray for it because we pray for you to come. We grow weary sometimes, Lord, of the process of conversion. So we ask that you would come, that the day of Jesus Christ would be upon us and that our conversion would be completed. But until then, give us strength and patience and perseverance that we might bear with one another, that we might wait 
for your process in our own lives that we might not doubt just because we have doubts, but because we, we see you at work. We recognize that as Gideon began a, a pagan and ended up being one of your, uh, uh, you, uh, one of the men you used so powerfully, well, we ask the same for ourselves, that you would use us. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.